any prayer requests tonight, or or Thanksgiving offerings um, in prayers. Pastor Bob. Kay, yes. Wanted to say thank you for all your prayers that uh, Paul came home after sixty days in the hospital. Wow. Going That's such good news. Around, you know, hospital to nursing home, then back to the hospital. Yeah. He was resuscitated three times. Wow. He almost died three times, and three times God wasn't ready for him to, you know, be called. Yeah. So he's still with us and came home, so Cheryl is very happy. Uh, but long, long way for recovery. Yeah. He can't even stand up two weeks. Yeah, yeah. Can't yeah. get out of bed, but it's just a baby step, one day at a time. Yeah. So thank you for all your prayers. No. Yeah, thank you, Kay, for asking. Always, I always, um, uh, wow, I always. Somebody's audio is. I always feel humbled by um, your prayer requests, all of you, always. Um, I'm. I'm glad that we can be a part of them. So, um, you know my own thoughts about this, that I, we always pray for life, for particularly for those we love. Um, sorrows, sufferings are sad for us all. I know that when somebody we love is suffering. Our great faith is, it seems to me, what separates us from the rest of the world is we're asked to have hope and faith when we have no reason. Everything we do, so much of what we do is within the power of our reasons. Our faith and hope, our love, um, are gifts we've been offered when we don't have any reason for having faith or hope or love. So somewhere in our life, um, we make a place for suffering and for dying um, with a gladness. You know that the rest of the world doesn't know so I'm so glad to hear he's doing well all of us are um, it's one of my deepest prayers that all of us make a place for a gladness when people are suffering and dying that's so hard it, go, it so goes against our nature but anyway Kay thank you for that um, after God yeah yeah I'd like to add if yeah we can continue praying for Joe uh, Joe had the spinal surgery. He, you know, he had a spina bifida when he was younger, and um, he he is he can walk still. He's in a wheelchair. His legs are like ice cold, and they're trying everything. And um, you know, his parents are just old. You know, they're much older. They're eighty and seventy nine, and you know, they're having to take care of him. And um, she she's they're not despairing by any means, but they really would appreciate our prayers for him. You got him. You got him. Thank you so much. God, God bless and you would, guys. Would you would you please continue to pray for our family too, the, the Kevin and Melody and our our kids? It's going to be a an interesting year, a lot of changes. So yeah, just, I know there are a lot of people suffering, and I hate to take up God's time, but if oh, do not say that. No, do yeah, I know. No, don't ever say that. Don't ever say. Wait, hold on. We've been over this too much. You're going to get hell from me right now. God's time. <laughs> God's time is infinite. God. I mean, you know that we did Boethius. His time is infinite. God. It's not like we're pressing him. 
it's our love that goes out to him that is so well, important. So, God. Him. So, yeah, no, I, I get it. I do. I understand. But I also feel a little guilty, too. So. Oh, Melody, boy, I'm going to... Later. You I'm, can't live with me. You can't live no, without me. No, that's... I, I, no, <laughs> no, that's not, no but, but you may hear from me after class. <laughs> I'll get my ruler so you can just clap my hands. <laughs> oh, God. Remember, be sure you add Paul to that list. Yeah, okay. Um, name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, <laughs> um, personal thanks from me for Christmas and the wisdom of our church, God and Mary and Christ at the center of it. Our church in its wisdom located the incarnation, um, your birth, in the darkest day of the year. Absolutely dark and cold. <laughs> who, who could do that except people who knew the depth of despair and sin and the darkness we carry and the necessity for a hope at that time? So we are at the darkest time of the year. It's winter, it's cold. Um, we've just celebrated your birth and now your epiphany. Um, so the commercial world tends to just put a fluff on that. Um, all of us know that behind it is a death. Um, you entered the world knowing that you would die, you'd go to a cross. So it's a strange paradoxical day for all of us. Um, it, it always carries a heaviness because of the loved ones we carry, but our great happiness, God, the great joy um, that you did the impossible, that you came into our world to die <laughs> because you loved us so much. So thank you for this Christmas season, for um, the epiphany, for the celebration of seeing your coming to us um, without being pressed, <laughs> without, <laughs> without being pressed, to offer yourself freely and offer us away. So thank you, Lord, for the great gift of this season. We offer a special um, thank you um, for Paul and his recovery. Um, um, continue to be with him and strengthen him. If it's your will to bring him back, um, please do strengthen him ask for a special prayer for those who love them, um, Kay and David, especially Kay. She so clearly carries them in her heart. Um, let, let those loved ones who are not affected um, be strengthened by what they're watching. Um, we always think of suffering and loss as an awful thing, but sometimes it's a grace if, if we could see it that way. So strengthen all of the people, the caretakers, and those of us who are aware of people's suffering. Um, help us all to be strengthened in our own faith by what we're witnessing. It's a heavy burden um, to carry the sorrows of others. And Joe, um, continue to um, watch over him. Um, particularly those who love him, and more particularly for Connie, um, that large heart of hers.
and I ask a special prayer for Melody um, that you take the ruler out of her hand <laughs> and that um, somewhere in the dark circumstances that they're facing she and everybody else in her family find a place for a joy and gladness. Help us all to remember that our crosses are graces, trials from you to help make us better, to hold, to hold us in our faith when we no longer have a reason for holding it. That's exactly when our faith is tested. So strengthen all of us, please, in our weaknesses. The world does so much to weaken us. But all that's happening, Thanksgiving for be a grace to um, strengthen us in our attachments to you. Thanksgiving for Thomas. I was going to. And I want to offer a special Thanksgiving um, to all of you for your prayers for us. Um, our two sons, have, our older sons, have been a lot on our hearts, heavy hearts. And something just happened with Thomas, our older, that just blew apart blew open Christmas and was a joy. Um, I don't want to go into it. It was like a prodigal son returning. <sighs> Sorry. So for this Christmas season, um, the rebirth that all of us are invited to share in with your birth annually so that each year we're reborn again in some way. Our daughter this day I think started a tradition or maybe she started in recent years. It's Irish I guess. Christmas Eve or New Year's Eve she opened the door <laughs> to let out the, <laughs> the past and let in the new. It's new from her but I hope that's true for all of us that some way and each of us metaphorically and literally open a door and let the old things pass so that the new life that you offer us each year annually is real for us. That year by year we can grow with you. I ask for a special grace of patience for all of us, particularly for me, I mean it's a real needed thing. For a greater patience um, we wait on you. Um, help us all of us to grow in patience, um, whatever our circumstances are. It's in our patience that we're showing our trust in you. So help those of us, I'm including myself here, hold to that when we're facing hardships. How good it is to be together. Um, again, um, let a blessing be on all the work we do together. Help us to take it to our world um, because it's so needed. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. <laughs> Melody, you better tell me that that hand of yours is lighter as if something's been lifted from it. <laughs> it was very a very good prayer and very apropos for what I need, so thank you. No, thank you. Thank you. I'm grateful for our humor. And Okay, let's start. Um, we've got a lot to do. Um, and I've got to try to connect this with the work today, which is not going to be easy because we're going from Christmas to the Inferno. So, but the poem that I'd like to read tonight, as you all know, is T.S. Eliot's um, Journey to the Magi. Um, if you all got my, did every everybody's 
receiving my emails, right? Everybody in this group is receiving my emails. Yes? Okay, okay. You should be receiving the invitation. I'll have to look into that. But anyway, if, if you don't have a copy of it, you can go onto the poetry packet. There's a separate copy of it, but it's also included in that poetry list. And I think I sent you a note saying, I think it would be a really good thing for all of you to print off the whole poetry packet because the, it's a collection of really good poems. You would enjoy reading them. Um, and I, I included in that list a poem called On My First Son by Ben Johnson. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful poem. It's about the death of his son. It's a poem I've forever loved. And we'll probably read it next week um, just because it's a touching poem and a, and, a, and a poem in which a parent is getting chastised. Um, not, not in any bad way. It's it's that that so often um, when we when we um, when we lose somebody, um, we carry a lot into our experience of suffering. So, anyway, take a look at Ben Johnson's "On My First Son." Okay, let's start. Okay. Um, we've got to get back to Dante's The Inferno, and it's Epiphany Week, and this is becoming an annual poem, just be because it's so appropriate for the time. Um, I'm going to, um, I'm not going to say anything. Oh! Oh, something just happened. Somebody's just joined our group from outside, I think. Um, pardon me, you guys, for my... <laughs> Suarez Castaneda, I guess, Juan. I, I hope I'm pronouncing that wrong, rightly. Um, um, if you click on the, the camera image and the microphone image, um, your image should appear and then we can hear you um, if you would like. But anyway, it looks like you're outside the group. So it's, I think it's the first time we've had somebody from outside the group. So welcome, please. Um, I I hope Sorry. I I hope Sorry. this I hope this goes well for you but um anyway let's start I'm just going to make a couple comments and then I'm going to leave the poem for you guys I'm not going to comment afterwards we we've read it before um annually so here it again here it is again it's T.S. Eliot um taking the, the journey of the Magi um, as his subject, but he's doing it in contemporary terms. So by doing this, what he's doing is collapsing two time periods. The time period of the Magi when it actually took place and our time. So in a sense, he's, asked, he's using language the way poets do to bring two time periods together to enlarge our insight to see that this is not of the past, it's now. So he's doing exactly what Boethius talked about when he said God is always at work. The poets are the ones, so good poets, are the ones who do that, who, who collapse lots of levels of time into one so that they increase our powers of perception, our powers of understanding. Eliot's doing that with the Journey of the Magi. So he's taking us back but at the center of this journey that he describes is this paradox. That what happens in Christ's death is um, 
that a God enters time to bring life to the world that we can't give ourselves. He's offering us immortality through a cross. The only way to it is through a cross. That's the paradox of our faith. Um, who offers us immortality, um, but through death. So life and death are intimately linked here. We try to do everything in our world to separate them, but um, we're, we start dying the moment we're born. And we're already moving towards death. That's our final end. Nobody escapes it. So in this poem, he's bringing those two things together in, a, in an instant. And at the end of it, you know at the end of the Magi story, the description is, and they returned by another way. So whatever the way they came um, is not the way they took back. Something happened in that encounter with God that changed them. And hopefully that's what's happening to us with all of the literature we're reading, okay? Um, I don't know what's... Um, so, T.S. Eliot's The Journey of the Magi. Um, Julie, I saw you appear and then disappear. I hope you're back again. Um, T.S. Eliot, Journey of the Magi. A cold coming we had of it, just the worst time of the year. But I'm going to start over. <laughs> Think about this in this term. You know when we get this from Scripture and the reading each year, it sounds different in Scripture. We're so used to that reading. That's the words that are used there, the words that, in which the story comes to us. But Eliot's using our language. So he's bringing that experience that's always been described in Scripture in a certain way to us through a different language, and it's our language, and it helps bring it into our time. What poets do so often is open a world to us through our language. The language will be different in 50 years from now. In 50 years, we will need another poet. Um, poets have to find a voice for every age because the voice is different, okay? So T.S. Eliot. <coughs> I'm going to mute all of you guys just because I've been told that it helps, but you know, anytime you want to break in, just click on your microphone button and, and jump in with whatever you've got. The Journey of the Magi. A cold coming we had of it, just the worst time of the year for a journey, and such a long journey. The ways deep and the weather sharp, the very dead of winter, and the camels galled, sore-footed, refractory, lying down in the melting snow. There were times when we regretted the summer palaces on slopes, the terraces, and the silken girls bringing sherbet, and the camel men cursing and grumbling and running away and wanting their liquor and women, and the night fires going out and the lack of shelters, and the cities dirty and the towns unfriendly, and the villages dirty and charging high prices. A hard time we had of it. At the end, we preferred to travel all night, sleeping in snatches, with the voices singing in our ears, saying that this was all folly. Then at dawn, we came down to a temperate valley, wet below the snow line, smelling of vegetation. Sorry. Smelling of vegetation, 
with a running stream and a watermill beating the darkness and three trees on the low sky, and an old white horse galloped away in the meadow. Then we came to a tavern with vine leaves over the lintel, six hands at an open door dicing for pieces of silver and feet kicking the empty wineskins. But there was no information, and so we continued and arrived at evening, not a moment too soon, finding the place. It was, you may say, satisfactory. All this was a long time ago, I remember, and I would do it again, but set down. This set down. This. Were we led all that way for birth or death? There was a birth, certainly. We had evidence and no doubt. I had seen birth and death, but had thought they were different. This birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. We returned to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here, in the old dispensation, with an alien people clutching their gods. I should be glad of another death. Elites. Uh oh. Okay. Um, let's start. Um, it's been a while, so I thought what I would do tonight to start is just quickly go over um, what we've done. And then I'd like to return to something that I've mentioned a couple of times, but um, but haven't spent much time with Dante's um, allegorical method. And um, then we'll get back to the uh, the inferno in the middle of it where we left off. Okay. So just quickly in review, you remember that at the time that Dante lived, um, that there was this war between the Guelphs and the Ghibellines. It had started in Germany in the Holy Roman Empire, Holy Roman Empire, and the Church. The two were in conflict with each other constantly. And you know from the thumbnail sketch that I gave you that, that the tensions of that conflict arose early on in history when Rome collapsed and the barbarians were at the gate and the Pope came out to negotiate with them. The Emperor had moved. The seat of the Empire Authority had moved from Rome to Constantinople. Um, Rome was um, a ghost of itself. But when the Pope did that, what he did was establish the place of the papacy in temporal affairs. And the two were entwined in unhealthy ways for centuries. I don't want to go through that. One of the most important conflicts, I mean, there are just lots of them. The, um, the investiture conflict when um, political leaders were given the power to invest priests or even bishops and, and the contrary. Um, simony, when um, priests were buying and selling property, um, the Donest um, controversy when some people maintained that if a priest was impure, he um, um, he wasn't eligible to administer the sacraments, things like that, and the church said, that's not true. If you wait until a, um, somebody has to be pure, we'd never receive them. Because the whole point of all of those controversies was that the church is Christ. And I can't, I cannot emphasize that enough. 
We think of the church as a building. The church doesn't. Holy waters, the sprinkling of the architecture, the arrangement, the setup, you know, of the altar in relation to spaces. All of those things are ways of reinforcing the fact that that our church is a holy space. It's set aside. In the Protestant world, you know that that space moves outward externally into the body. So each person has, is a temple to himself. We believe that the temple itself, the church, is Christ and that we are at members and we're all a part of it. So these conflicts raged back and forth between the two powers and in, they moved to, um, from Germany to Italy and the two parties were identified in, um, as Guelphs and Ghibellines. The Guelphs were those who identified with the Pope, the Ghibellines with the Emperor. Um, and and generally dynastic or imperial or uh, aristocratic family lines. Out of that conflict um, emerged this new kind of community, an idea of a of a polis, a city. It came because at that time Aristotle had been discovered, and Saint Thomas had done his work. Prior to Aristotle, all of the images of the city were derived from Plato. The city was looked at as a punitive place. It was a place where laws were enforced to punish people. Aristotle's position was that the city is not a place to punish people. Laws are meant to help us become better. That the natural end of man is goodness, virtue. And laws are meant to help us get there. So this new city emerged out of this conflict between the Guelphs and the Ghibellines. It was called a Burger Republic. Um, and it, it identified itself in its own terms as a good in itself. So it separated itself, you remember, from both the emperor and the pope. Dante was born exactly in that year when the first Burger Republic was established. That Burger Republic was the model for our regime, the commercial republic. It's new. Remember, the Gilson Gil and Gevelines, um were divided along... Um, emperor and pope lines, the the Gelfs divided down um, into two parties, the white and the blacks. The blacks continued to identify themselves with the papacy. The whites broke themselves off and said that this new community that that had um, become a part of men's thinking then because of the influence of um, Aristotle and, and, and really St. Thomas, that this new city um, was based on um, a belief in the importance of man's freedom, that men shouldn't be forced to believe in God or the emperor or attach themselves to one or the other, that he should be free to make a choice. So these new cities encouraged um, entrepreneurship, risking. Each person was responsible for himself. He could make his life better by his own efforts. So he wasn't... Um, he wasn't susceptible to the corruptions of influence or family lines. Each person was created in a situation, put in a situation in which he could have a large say in his destiny. So this new way of looking at, at political life entered the West. We call that moment, this is so crucial to see, we call that moment historically the Renaissance. It was the beginning of a new way of looking at our human nature. Out of it came all sorts of art and music and painting. 
um, the Copernican Revolution, the scientific revolution, came out of that moment, a new freedom for science, the way it investigated, the way it looked at things, and these new kind of polities, these new kind of political entities. They're all expressions of what, you know, sadly we, we call the Renaissance. I'm only saying that because most people, you know, don't understand, you know, what was really going on there. But so much of what went on came out, came as a result of this conflict between the church and state and the efforts of the church to separate itself out from this political world so that this political world could move according to its own dynamics. The church was there. It oversaw things. Its end was the human soul, its final destiny, its salvation with God. But on earth, there was something else going on politically. And out of that came the Renaissance. Milton, Shakespeare, you know, all the, all the um, Michelangelo, the great painters and artists. So Dante's there at the beginning of that. You know, he's a century off. Um, actually, just you know, 50 years off or so from the Renaissance in its beginning. When Dante writes, he's looking back to the past as a way of honoring it, but he's also doing something new. All the epics, you know because you've read them now, um, look back to an ideal he's past, the, Achille, or the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid. Dante does that, he looks back to the past, but he brings it into the present by making himself the subject of his epic, he writes it in his own voice and he writes it in the vernacular. He's not going back to a classical language. And he brings the present, he makes the present the time of his epic. He brings the past in through Virgil, but he makes himself the subject. So he's doing something radically new. As a matter of fact, I'm going to say that in some ways this is the precursor. The Divine Comedy is the precursor of the modern novel. It takes the present as his subject. He's doing an amazing thing. Um, we've talked um, a little bit about the structure of the Divine Comedy, its Trinitarian character. Remember that it's, um, it's divided into three sections, the um, Inferno, the Purgatorio, um, the Perdiso. Um, each of the canticles, the Inferno, the Purgatorio, Perdiso is divided into three. So the, um, the inferno is divided into the sins of the incontinence, the violence, and the fraudulent. That's true of every sec Each canticle is divided into three. And the poetic rhyme scheme is Trinitarian. It's called a terzarima. It's, it's three lines that keep moving forward. And that, that's the amazing. It's the same line, A-B-A, B-C-B, C-D-C. It's the same thing. This is the amazing. It's the same thing. The, the first and third lines rhyme and the middle one doesn't. The middle one is the beginning of the next um, stanza. It's the same rhyme, constantly in motion. So it's stillness and motion combined. In itself, it's an image of the Trinity. It's absolutely fixed. It's unchanging and changing. Is that clear? ABA, BCB, CDC, yeah, going forward. It's the same thing moving forward. It's amazing. So the notion of the Trinity is embedded in, um, in, the, in every aspect of the poem. 
And when we read it, we, we have a sense that Dante was completely Trinitarian. I mean, he's living his faith. <coughs> In a way, I think most Catholics don't. <coughs> we take our Trinitarian nature for granted. If we're made in the image of God, our God is not solitary. He's not alone as he is for um, the Jewish or Islamic peoples. He's not alone. He's not solitary. He's Trinitarian. He's communal. <clears throat> there are three persons indwelling. So every one of us, by, by virtue of the fact that we we're made in God's image, was meant to love and be loved. To know and to be known to indwell, to be one with another, to have another be one with us. So these are just sort of some of the buried aspects of um, the poem. We talked about the contrapasso. The contrapasso is going to be real in every episode we read. Remember, the contrapasso is an external representation of what's internal. It'll be true in the Purgatory, it'll be true in um, the Paradiso. In the Inferno, it happens to deal with bad. You know, at every level, like if we take the first level of sin, the lustful, remember that Francisco and Paolo were being buffeted about by winds and there were birds being tossed about. That imagery um, represented ex externally exactly what goes on in the soul of lust, the action of lust that it's turbulent, it's tossing, um, somebody's out of control, um, won't control, it's not steady. So that, and it changes from circle to circle because the sin changes. So Dante's giving an, an exact picture of our sins so that we can know them as they are. So that we, because if we don't know them, how do we repent? Christ called us for us to repent. How do we repent something if we don't even see it? Don't understand it. And he's using an allegorical method. We have not talked about that, um, and I want to do that in a minute because I, I want to give it a few minutes. We've not given it before. Um, some of the great themes. Um, remember, one of the great themes is the city itself. That's been one of the major themes of every work we've read. Every, every single work we've read. This is so, so crucial. The modern world has made everything focused on the individual. The individual. The movement in the Bible is from the garden to the city. From Adam and Eve in the garden to the New Jerusalem. It's not from a garden to a garden. It's from a garden to a city. The defining image for us is communal. It's one with another. The most frequently used image in the Bible that I'm aware of in a church is the mystical body of Christ. Christ is the head, we're all his parts. We belong to him. So the image of all of us ultimately is a city. We're defined by our relationships to everybody else. Aristotle said that. He said man is a political animal. We only realize our potential with other people because we need other people to help us learn. That's in our nature. That's why the cities took such a drastic turn in the Renaissance because it, it, it became such a point of consciousness that we realized we can't get better without the help of other people. So it changed the dynamics of our understanding of the city. The city became the, the um, matrix for understanding ourselves. The modern world, it's our psyche. 
sort of separate, maybe in our families, but not the city. Dante knew that it was only in relationship to the city that we could really understand ourselves because we needed something much larger. Um, so it's not just our family that is, should be our concern in understanding our nature. It's, it's a larger world because we know, all of us know, we get this from Plato's cave too, all of us know that there are all these influences going on when we grow up that influence our lives, that affect us. And we've got to answer all of them. They have such a hold on us. Remember, Plato's image was slowly coming out of the cave, learning to question what those influences are. So the city has a matrix, a paradigm for understanding ourselves. And in the, in the Inferno, the city has various names. It's called the Flaming City, the Wasteland. It's why Eliot's, one of Eliot's most famous poems is called The Wasteland. The flaming city, the wasteland. Um, I've said this before that I think Dante's a prophet of the modern world because he's giving us the most complete critique of the modern commercial regime that we've ever had. The Florence that he's looking at is the paradigm, the prototype of America. It's a commercial regime. Um, I don't think I need to go through all of the the first cantos, but you remember that when um, it, the the poem begins with Dante trying to go up that mountain and failing, he gets beaten back by those three beasts: the leopard, the lion, and the she wolf. And then Virgil comes to him and says, "You can't do this your, um, yourself." Um, that he was sent by Beatrice, who was sent by Lucia, who was sent by Mary. So that the underlying, the backstory, the underlying action of the whole of the Divine Comedy is this divine action. A whole divine action was set in motion for this one man to save him. Because what we'll learn later is that Dante was in danger of being damned. We don't learn that early on, but we will later. So there's this whole divine order that's set in motion to help Dante do something he can't on his own. Mary was the one who started it. She took pity on Dante. She sent for Lucia. Lucia went to get Beatrice because she knew that Dante loved Beatrice, and Beatrice went to get Virgil for the same reason. So what we're watching, even though it's not visible, is a whole invisible order of divine love set in motion for a man, which means for every man. That's true for every one of us. Somehow God is doing something for every one of us. Um, whether we've got a ruler in our hand or not. Um, so that's the underlying action. That's the sort of backstory. You know, everything that's going on. Um, I want to, I want to, I want to. So remember that we, we've, up to this point, we've already covered the incontinent. When Virgil takes Dante into um, the Inferno, we meet the virtuous pagans, the lustful, the gluttonous, you know, the avaricious, and then the um, wrathful. And we, we just got to the city of Dees, and we're moving on to the level of the violence. So we covered the incontinence. There's three levels to the Inferno, the incontinent, the violent, and the fraudulent. And we've covered the first one. Um, and one of the most important things, I, it, you know, in terms of scenes, it, it, it doesn't stand out, but it, it has a principle in my mind that, that's so important and, and one that needs 
to be reinforced, so I'll just bring that one up. We could talk about any number of them, but remember when Dante came to the level of the virtuous pagans, the virtuous pagans were not suffering punishments. They were good virtuous pagans. What Dante is showing us is that natural virtue is not enough to get us into heaven. That's very different from the modern Protestant mind. The modern Protestant, the modern Protestant believes we're depraved, absolutely depraved from the fall. It's only by grace that we're saved. Dante doesn't believe that. He believes, as a Catholic, that we're wounded. We suffer from concupiscence. It's a wound. It can be overwhelming. We don't have the strength to answer it. But God made us good. We are inherently good. We're wounded. And on the level of the virtuous pagan, remember, he shows us good people who are not suffering, but they're in a dim light because in their world, they didn't have the support of the supernatural virtues. They only had the natural virtues. The natural virtues are temperance, prudence, endurance, and justice. Those are the four basic virtues all of us, all of us are supposed to be practicing. Temperance, watching how we eat and drink, the goods of the world, sex. Prudence, being wise, um, enduring, holding on when things are hard. And justice, giving people their due. Those are, the, those are natural virtues. All of us should be working on them. But they're not enough to, give us, to get us into heaven. So the contrapasso at that level is this dim light. What they don't know is the joy that comes from faith, hope, and charity. Those are supernatural virtues. We're given those to help us at times when reason isn't enough. We hope when there's no reason for hope, or it's not hope. For, for us to say, I, I hope I get a bicycle for, you know, for Christmas, that's not hope. I hope that's clear. I hope I get a... Hope means hoping when you have no reason to hope. When, when everything's going bad, that's exactly when we're supposed to hope, to hold on. Faith means having faith exactly when we don't have a reason for having faith. I hope I'm clear. I can't stress that enough because I think our modern world has just lost that. Absolutely. The supernatural virtues are gifts from God that are beyond those um, within our natural grasp, you know, the natural virtues. The people at the level of, you know, in the circle of the virtuous pagans are good people. They're not suffering punishments, but they live in a dim world. They don't know how to be happy in the midst of suffering. And that's exactly what Christ called us to. So we went through the level of the incontinent. We just had reached the level of D. Dante and Virgil went to the city. Remember, Dante, Virgil approaches the city and he can't get in. And Dante's discouraged because he thinks Virgil's going to be defeated. And we learned something again. Natural reason, because Virgil's an image of our natural powers, natural reason is not sufficient to deal with evil. Medusa appears on the, on the walls and Virgil turns Dante around because she knows that our, our natural powers are not capable of dealing with evil. I can't say that strongly enough. Um, I'm assuming that if any of us, one of us had an encounter with Satan, we'd be overwhelmed. His powers are so great. So Dante's helping us to learn about the nature of evil 
to help us see our limits, to see what we can do. Virgil's helping him. That's at the that's the point at which we um, we left off, I think, in our last class. Now let me let me stop um, because it, it was at that we just we had just started the level of the violence. I think we talked about Pierre de Vanyan and um, some of the people at the at the level of uh, sodomy and um, usury. But I'd like to pick up. I'd like to go back to that point. But let me stop here. Um, I wanna I wanna I want to um, give some background thoughts that relate to Christmas and the Epiphany as a way of getting into the inferno, if I can, to make that jump. But let me stop here. Any questions about what we've done or what's going on, where we are? Are you with me? I am. Are you? Any questions? <coughs> Mary Mulaski. Mary. Mary Jane. Huh? It's Mary Jane. Mary Jane, are you here? I see your name here, but I haven't seen an image. Um, I'm here. Oh, good. Good to hear your voice. Good to hear your voice. I don't know how to get my image on. I've, I've, I don't there, know. You're there, you're there, you're there. Oh, okay. You're I there. see. Okay, thank you. Good to see you. Good to see you. Thank you. Um, I'm in. I'm in Florida now. You're always somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Mary Jane has been a pillar in the Francis group. For those of you, you know she she's been here with us for a while. So, any questions about what I just said? This this is all just review. This is a simple question, but you know the divine order. You said that this began. Uh, it started with Mary. And then went to Lu Lucia, you said? Right. Who, who was that? I, I mean, that might be a dumb question, but who are we re referring to? Is it anybody in particular or just... Um, uh, it's not a... There are no dumb questions, Connie, <laughs> particularly from you and M Melody. There are no There are no dumb questions. Um, I think Lucia brings the light. Um, I, I think she... I, you know, I, I, I'm sure there's a St. Lucy... Oh, there is. But I, but I think um, Lucci allegorically is a, um, the name means light. I think she's an image of divine light. Oh, so okay. she's a grace. I mean, we, I, Dante probably had particular Luchas on his mind. And mine, yeah. But I think ultimately, he, he, he's, in the way that he's treating it here, is that she's an image of divine grace. A light, okay. a, re a real person working in Dante's life and through Mary, um, but at, at, um, in the way that she's presented, I think she probably refers to a Lucia, historical Lucy, okay. who was identified with light. Um, I think the really important thing to see here is that, that even though on a literal level the poem starts with Dante climbing the mountain, this is really important. On a literal level, the poem starts with Dante climbing the mountain. It had already started before in heaven. That a divine action was set in motion. Virgil comes to him because things had already happened on Dante's behalf. It, it's a reminder that something's going on in our life that's at work, even if we don't see it. 
You know, we're, we're, we're asked to stand in faith, holding on when, when we don't have a reason for standing in faith or hoping, so that's the action. There are no dumb questions when you're being serious, and I know you are. Anybody else with questions? I don't, I can't remember, I don't think I got this, I, I set out to give you guys a note, and I don't think I got it on it, finally, even though it, I'd spent so much time on it, and I, I will send it out tomorrow, because I, I, I'll have to go back at the note and look at what I sent you, but um, I'll have to see. Um, I want to, I want to do a couple of things tonight. We're in a season in which revelations play a big part of our life. Um, um, the angel came to Mary. Um, Joseph had a revelation in a dream. Um, a couple. <laughs> um, a number of people had revelations. Um, and after, I just love the Simeon and all that happened in the temple afterwards, but you know that that Mary sets off to visit Elizabeth, and and when they when she approaches her, um, John in Elizabeth's womb um, leapt, and it immediately um, um, took shape in Elizabeth's mind, and she responds to Mary and says, "My Lord is visit." So John and Christ in wombs are responding to each other, and their responses are having an effect on those two women. Uh, to me, it's just amazing. I, I, um, we're doing the um, Aeschylus' um, trilogy, the Oristia at St. Francis, and Revelations. Are, uh, you guys should check it out online. We'll get them up online in a day or so, but the Oristia by Aeschylus. It's amazing because there's a prophetess in the Agamemnon called Cassandra. She says things that nobody else sees. The men don't. They just don't see. Um, and the implications of her revelations are amazing for the play. Well, they are for Elizabeth and Mary. Um, Mary's visited by Gabriel, you know, and asked to receive God into her. So God's going to enter her body, conceive a child. It's going to be Christ. We've just celebrated that event in Christmas. The epiphany deals fundamentally with revelations. The shepherds are given a, an immediate divine revelation, right? Um, and the Magi are given a strange kind of revelation. Some, some may call it just a, a direct natural fact. A star appears in the sky, but I'm, I'm not, I can't leave it that way myself because it's not just a star, it's a star that's moving them somewhere. So, um, so something's happening in the earthly order that carries the power of a revelation. So everything going on in Christmas is relating us to a divine order. And um, revelations are being offered everywhere, before Christ's birth, afterwards, to the shepherds, to the magi. We know that the magi are men who love learning. They love knowledge, technical knowledge. They put all this knowledge together and it leads to, to this sense that there's something there for them to find out. So they set off as seekers to discover what that is. And they're guided by this star. 
So they're being moved, I think, by a coincidence of two things, of something occurring in the natural order and something that has the power of a revelation that's going to lead them to Christ. When they get there, you know from the description of the Bible that when they left, they left by another way. They were in danger. Herod was threatening. They'd seen Christ. They'd go back another way. Um, the Divine Comedy, Dante's work, is full of revelations. Full of revelations. It's a, it's a natural work. It's set in the natural order. It's during Dante's time. Everything that happens in the Divine Comedy takes place from Monday, Thursday through a week. On Sunday morning, Easter morning, Dante will come out of the inferno and arrive at the gates of purgatory. That's Sunday morning. That will be a rebirth for him. He will begin his life again when he goes up purgatory um, to see people answering their sins by the penance they're taking on. That will be a turn for him. He will go up purgatory and finally into the heavens. So prophecies occur all the time. Um, he meets people repeatedly telling him about things that are happening in the future. Um, sometimes they can't even see in the past, but they know the future. We looked at those last week. I'll, I'll review one in a, just a minute when we get back to it. But prophecies occur all the time, and Dante offers the work. When we get to the Paradiso, we'll find this. Dante offers the work as a piece of prophecy. That he's showing us things that we can't see without his help. And some of those things are the things that lots of us don't want to see. That's the nature of prophecy. It's not always foretelling the future. It's helping us to see those things that make us uncomfortable. We live our lives the way we want. We want to stay in our own comfort zones. Um, but prophecies, omens, lights, things are given to us to help us get out of that world. And we know that so often, sadly, that doesn't happen. We stay where we are. The whole of the Divine com com Comedy is, is offered as a prophecy. We know from everything that happens in the comedy, we don't need outside references, the outside references just reinforce it, but we know from the comedy, Dante was exiled. He lost his home. He had to give up everything, and standing outside that world, that world that made him comfortable, that gave him everything he wanted, he lost it all. But having lost everything, he was put in a position where he could see things differently from other people. So the Divine Comedy is one sense of prophetic work. It's showing us something about our time. It, it was probably the most powerful influence on T.S. Eliot's life and his own poetry. So it's important to hold on to the prophetic nature of this work. We can read it as literature. It's important to see that for Dante, it's a piece of prophecy. In the Paradiso, we're going to actually see that Dante was called outside by God, by people coming from God, to tell the truth about some things, to be prophetic. We also know from our own faith that every one of us is called to be a, um, a priest, prophet, and king. We are supposed to be lords of ourselves, priests, and prophets. Just, um, do we need to take a phone call here? <laughs> um, okay, here. 
One thing we have not talked about, but I want to get this clear because we're, we're still at the beginning of things. Dante's work, one of the methods that he uses is what's called the allegorical method of proceeding. We can say that in some sense, by its very nature, allegory is prophetic. Okay? But it's, it's a term that in the modern world is, is not very well received. Most people think of allegory as a stiff kind of abstraction. You know, one thing equals another. Um, I, it's just so badly abused, that, and, and it actually ends up being that. It's like Freud does it a lot. He'll say, a pen is a penis. Or a gate is a woman's vagina, or you know, it's that's an allegorical way of thinking that one thing equals another, an an idea, a mental abstraction. That's the worst way of looking at allegory in the modern world is reinforced. Dante uses an allegorical method, but it was different. And I want to read this from St. Thomas. This is what I sent I wanted to send you, but I don't think I got it to you. But I'll um I want to read it here and then take a minute to explain it. This is from St. Thomas's Summa Theologica. <clears throat> In the first question, the very first article, the very opening of the Summa Theologica, St. Thomas is dealing with his methods. He's got to set out what he's doing and why he's doing it, um, because that's the basis on which he does everything else. If you don't get that, you won't understand what he's doing. So at the very beginning, in one of his articles, it's the tenth article in the in the first question, in the Summa One, the first question, he says, tenth article, um, whether Holy Scripture has several senses, are there different meanings to Holy Scripture? Because you know everybody argues about Holy Scripture all the time. Some people say a passage means one thing. Some people say it means another. Thomas says this. It seems that in Holy Writ, a word cannot have several senses, historical or literal, literal, allegorical, tribological, moral, anagogical. For many different senses in one text produces confusion and deception and destroy all force of argument. Hence, no argument but only fallacies can be deduced from a multiplicity of propositions. But Holy Scripture ought to be able to state the truth without any fallacy. Therefore, in it, there cannot be several senses to a word. Now, if any of you know St. Thomas, he does two things that are major. One is, um, he always asks questions. Always. He, he begins every section with question. He never, never makes an assertion. He always starts asking questions. So picture a circle. This is Boethius. Picture a circle with the still point at the center. He always begins on the periphery, at the, at the outer extremes, you know, from different positions on a circle, asking questions. I want everybody to hold on to that image of a circle with a center. Because he'll ask ten questions positioned differently on that circumference, and then he'll go to the very center so he can answer every one of them. It's not until you can go to that center, to a first principle, you can answer those questions. If you don't go to that center, you'll be left in a confusion with putting one question against another. Is that image clear? He always starts with questions, lots of them. It's like a circle. And he'll always offer an answer, and that one answer can answer all of them because it goes to a principle. That's what the modern mind, the mind forever lacks. 
It's ability to go to first principles because it's only in going to them that we can answer all the questions around it. Okay? That's the first thing. The second is he never asks what a thing is. Never. Because to do that would be to put him in a platonic world. To ask what is to go to essences, the essences of something, what a thing is. What's justice? What's color? What's, you know, whatever the question is. He always frames the question in terms of a weather because he always goes to existence, not an essence. He's the most existential philosopher that has ever lived on this earth. His questions always go to existence because God is. And we live in a world in which everything around us, including ourselves, is. We are. We exist. Okay? So he says whether scripture can have several senses. And then he says, this is what he does, on the contrary, now he's going to go to the center, and he's going to go to the principle to all these questions, because there are ten questions. I just offered you one of them. He's going to go to the center so that he can answer all these questions. Here's what he says. On the contrary, Gregory says, Holy Writ, by the manner of its speech, transcends every science, because in one and the same sentence, while it describes a fact, it also reveals a mystery. There is no mystery, hold on to this, there is no mystery where there is not more to be known. There's no mystery where there's not more to be known, because all mystery, I th hope everybody gets this, God himself is nothing but intelligible light. He is. It's a light we can't penetrate because it's infinite. But it's all intelligible. It's all meaning. There's nothing not meaning about God. Right? So, in all mystery, there's always something more to be known. We use our powers of reason to try to enter into that mystery to understand it. Right? So very often things happen to us and we want to try to understand them. We use our powers of mind and, and it helps us to see more. But usually when we see more, we're still left knowing we're still in a mystery. There's more to be seen. And that's okay. The modern mind enters everything like it's a problem to be solved. And they're not going to, people are not going to be happy until they solve it and do away with mystery. <laughs> we live with a faith that says mystery is at the heart of our whole life and it's important for us to make a place for it. So Gregory says, Holy Writ by the manner of its speech transcends every science because in one and the same sense, while it describes a fact, it's using reason to make clear something. It reveals a mystery. Every moment in our life combines those two things. An intelligible fact, something we can understand, and a mystery. Always. Every moment. So he says, I answer that, and this is where I'm going. The author of Holy Writ is God, in whose power it is to signify his meaning, not by words only, but also by things, because everything he creates reveals him. He's revealed in everything. So as in every other science, things are signified by words, this science has the property that the things signified by the words have themselves also a signification. 
everything that words signify. So hold on. Right now we're in this class. Literally, we're all together working together. That's a fact, right? So the words that I'm using are describing this fact, yes? And I hope, I hope all of us are together. I hope you're not doubting me like Descartes. I hope you're not doubting me. We're all here. Some of you are smiling. Um, some of you are probably wanting to pull your hair out by what I'm saying, but we're all here, right? My words are describing a fact. That's literally what's going on, okay? Things signified by the words themselves have also a significance. There's a reality. Therefore, the first signification whereby words signify things belong to the first sense, the historical or literal. The literal sense right now of what's going on is we are here together online talking about Dante. That's literally true, yeah? Um, that signification where things are signified by words have themselves also a signification. It's called the spiritual sense which is based on the literal. So included or on top of this literal sense is a spiritual sense. Something more is going on. That something more has three levels. So in this moment in which we're all meeting, the literal, the literal level, we're all here, right? There are three other levels. You can call all three of them the spiritual level. Okay, so there are four levels of meaning, the literal and three more. So everybody following me, I should have gotten this out. I I'm really apologize, I should have gotten this scheme, but, but I'm glad to go over it because it's important. Now this spiritual sense has a threefold division. For as the apostle says, this is Paul, this is Paul. The old law is a figure of the new law. Um... See, um, the second sense, insofar as which things refer to a moral sense or, or Christ, they have a moral meaning. So the first meaning is old and new, it's historical. The second is moral, they refer to Christ. And the third level is called the anagogical and refers to final things, glory or damnation. So every le everything that takes place on the world always, forever, has three, four levels of meaning. The literal and the spiritual embedded in it. The spiritual has three levels. The historical, old to new. The old man is passing away, the new man's coming. The moral, this is what we ought to be doing right now. We ought to be struggling with our faith. We ought to be struggling learning with our minds. And the anagogical, that everything we do is either moving us closer to Christ or moving us away. And we know from the inferno that everybody there has moved away from Christ. That's the analogical meaning of the inferno. Now let me just go over those one more time. Every moment of everything we're doing has a literal meaning. The, the allegorical meaning, the first, has to do with movement from old to new. It's a historical level, you can call it. We're either staying the way we were as the old man doing what we want to do. In our world, it's generally having fun and having our way and doing whatever we want. Or we're moving towards Christ. 
That's what Paul calls the old man and the new man. Okay? That's the first level, the historical, or the allegorical. The second level is the moral. Is what we're doing what we ought to be doing? It's so easy to go along to do what everybody else is doing. Are we really doing what we ought to do, what Christ asks us to do? I mean, the only way we can answer that is by reading Scripture and trying to apply it to our own lives, right? And the final level, the highest level, is the anagogical. At every moment of our life, what we're doing is either taking us farther away from Christ or taking us to Him. So every single moment in our lives, something's happening. Not just literally what's in front of us. And you all know that because the whole book is based on that predicate. We've already seen it. In the beginning, Dante starts to climb this mountain. He can't go up. The, the story seems to be literally, literally starting then. But we learn, allegorically, that the story had already started. Mary had come to get Lucia. Lucia had gone to get Beatrice, and Beatrice had gone. So there's another action invisible that's going on. So that every, every single event in Dante's Commedia has a literal level and an allegorical level at the same time. And very often when we're talking about episodes, that's what we're talking about. So, for example, let me just go to the, the gates of Dies. Remember when we stopped there, Virgil had gone to the gates and, and he was repulsed and Dante was frightened. He thought they were going to get stuck in hell. Virgil came back with his head down. Dante was worried. Medusa appeared on the gates and Virgil picked Dante up by the shoulders and physically turned him around. And I remember asking you guys the question, what's going on? Allegorically, what's happening is he's physically turning around. Literally, that's what happens. Alleg you know, literally. Allegorically, what we're learning is you don't look at hell. If you look at evil directly, it's overpowering. It turns you to stone. You look at evil, any of us fool around with that, we're in danger. The great irony of the Inferno is that Virgil's teaching us to look at evil. So we can deal with it ourselves. But looking at evil itself, the horror, the ugliness, can cause despair to turn us into stone. So that every episode in the Divine Comedy has a literal meaning. It's meaning, you know, it's just like we're meeting in class today. But it's also revealing meaning at these other levels. Now let me stop with that because I, I, it's probably new for a lot of you and it's, it's basic to what's going on with Dante. So I, I, um, I want to take a second. I'd, and I'd, I'd really like to hear all your questions. There are no dumb questions, you guys. So is that clear? Do you guys, are you following that? What's going on? That's, by the way, that's true of every story. I mean, we don't need Dante. You know that when you read a story, we know that literally this is happening, X, Y, Z, whatever it is. But we also know there's a deeper meaning to every story. That's, that's why when we started with Merchant of Venice or um, All's Well That Ends Well or Boethius or what have we read? Um, did we read the Iliad, the Odyssey, you know, Virgil? Every story we've read has had a literal meaning. 
but there are always deeper meanings. We had to put we had to put the story together to try to get a hold of what that meaning was. So, so let me stop for a second. I don't believe you don't have questions. I'm there. I must be doing something wrong here. Connie, you look like you're puzzling. No. Melody, I know you've got questions. I know you. Come on, I know they're there. Well, well you know I like to talk. Okay, so um, I, I remember having my feelings hurt when you said that pity was the most dangerous human emotion. <laughs> <laughs> but I understand that now because I think what you're trying to say is that and when I, I read the book, um, Dante was, you know, had pity for certain people and then was infuriated by others. And I thought, I think that's kind of a human emotion that if you are more apt to commit that sin, then you have more pity for those people who are suffering from that. Wow. But wow. In, in, in the same in the same term, just like you said with the spiritual senses, you have to learn from that. You have to look at them and say, I don't want to be that person. I have to turn away from that. Am I going to move closer to God or am I going to move closer to my sin? So in that sense, he's trying to show us, <coughs> you know, pity isn't going to do anybody any good because the people in hell have made their choices. So this is a time for you to learn from this. So. Wow. Wow. Such a great book. No, I love this book. Yeah, well, it's a great thought, what you just said. It's right on the... Wait, by the way, it's interesting, because I've had it in my mind to get back to you, and I would have forgotten. I want to be clear with everybody here, because I'm a little bit nervous about what I said. I remember your response, Melody, and I was a little bit... I was aware of it, but... I just want to clarify this. Pity is a natural emotion. We, we should never be ashamed of feeling pity for somebody. You know, we we we. I remember being in confession several weeks ago when um, a father came in here, and we were in line for, for confession. And I saw an old student um, of mine from UD. I don't want to go into it, but she's bent over and um, physically deteriorated. And um, I was so saddened to see her. You know, I just I went over to sit down with her for a minute and talk with her. And I mean, my natural response was pity. Pity is a good emotion. Pity is a capacity for us to feel what somebody else is going through. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know how we can learn without it. Because if we don't learn to empathize, to move out with somebody, we get closed too much in our own world. So pity is a good thing. The danger is when we're feeling pity, when we shouldn't, when somebody's in the commission of a sin, the danger of pity at that point is enabling and what you're describing, I thought you just described it so well, Melody, I mean, just perfectly in what you said. In fact, I can't remember, I'd like to go back and get a quote on your words, but, you know, when we're, how'd you put, when we're feeling sorry for people when they're doing something wrong, like what we're doing, so we're, you know, that's a, but I, I wouldn't have said that. My concern is, I think what Dante's showing us is, it, he's not against pity, he knows better. He, he couldn't, he couldn't do what he did if he didn't feel for people. But there's a danger in pity, and the danger is that we get arrested in it in dealing with the sins of others, particularly those people we love. And if we do, then we're not helping them. And it hurts 
because it means having to go against the feelings we'll feel for them. So I hope that's clear to everybody because that's such a, um, I, I tried to stress it then, and, and those of you who've gone in the reading will know it. You, you know it, Melody, because you finished. Dante struggles with pity all the way through the Inferno. He's going to be dealing with pity in the very last cantos. That's how tough it is. But um, I'll, we'll wait till we get there, because what he does at the very end is something I want to look at with you guys. But Melly, did you do you do you understand? I mean, are, are are all of you clear on Dante's allegorical method, what he's doing, and what it asks of us as readers? Is that all clear to you guys? I mean, I think I. I get the the gist of it, even though I didn't know, you know, the the textbook definition of it. I do get the gist of um, the fact that these um, these souls are they've made their choices. So they made their choice to be the people that they are. I found it so interesting. You haven't. I don't think we're we're going to probably talk about it tonight. Um, the uh, grifters who um, are still in hell tricking people, right, still trying right, to, right, right. you know, it's like right. nobody's learned their lesson. And, and I think if they had learned their lesson, they'd be in purgatory. Right. But, or trying to learn their lesson. It's absolutely but essential to see that. Yeah. Absolutely. And, that, and that's, that goes with what you've just talked about, those elements that, we, as the reader, are learning about this now so that we can change our ways, that we can go back towards God. But these people have not only made their choice, but they continue to be the people that they were, even in hell. Yep. So, again, you can't have pity on them because you, you, you were there to learn from them. Good for you. They are. Good for lost. you. Good for you. Good for you. Let me put it a little bit differently to, to just because I, I, I'm assuming that some of you are struggling with this, but Dante's introduction lays out his method, whether we see it that way or not. Okay, so in the so we go into hell, everything is so concretely realized that we're in our own world. In the very first canto, do any of us feel like we're in a real world? He steps out of a wood, he goes up a mountain, he's beaten back by these three beasts. Are we in a real world? That's a world of abstractions. He climbs a mountain, the sun's at the top, he's beaten by, by, by a leopard, a lion, and a she-wolf. Those are all symbol, symbolic, and they're meant to set up a contrast between what's happening in that first canto and everything else. What's going to be real is the, the leopard, the first animal, is going to be fleshed out, if you can put it out, fleshed out in the level of the incontinence, where we're going to see that leopard in each of those, the lustful, the gluttonous, the avaricious, the, yeah? So what's presented to us as an abstraction, a symbolic abstraction, becomes real in the poem. So Dante's giving us the method in the difference between that opening canto and everything else. The lion is going to be the violence, all that he's going to meet in the center of the inferno. And the she-wolf, who is vicious, and the last one, and the most terrifying, we're going to meet in the level of the fraud. And there we're going to see the truth of the inferno. And I want to go back to Melanie's point, just reinforce it. Just another way of saying it. Remember when we entered the gates of hell, um, um, what we learned is 
Everybody there has lost the good of the intellect. Everybody. What defines hell is people having lost the good of the intellect. Why? Because the intellect is the greatest gift given to man. It's by that power that we see. We can't use our wills well if we don't see something. We base our, what we do with our wills on what we see, understand. If we see our sins, we can do something about them. If we don't, we're in the dark. The greatest gift to us is our intellect. The people in hell are different from the people outside because they don't see that they don't see. They're stuck. They don't understand that they don't understand. They're like people who refuse to hear. So everything that Melanie's saying is so appropriate. I just, I'm loving the fact that you relate it to pity because you can't pity somebody who's, you know, decided to do something and won't hear. It's like God offering his mercy. Somebody saying, I don't need it. I don't need it. I'm okay. So the first canto gives us the method. Is that clear that every, everything that goes on is going to have multiple levels of meaning? But, and here's crucial. The modern mind has lost it. We don't get any of them, none of them, except through the literal. It's only there that we get the other meanings. If we, if we miss, skip that, we're out of reality. We're in another world. So the, the question before us is literally what's going on and what are its deeper meanings at every scene we read. Give an example. Uh, can, go ahead, Doc. What's, I don't, can you? No, you. Example of what? Of the literal meaning that if we skipped, we wouldn't get the rest. Okay, can anybody think of an example? Suzanne's. Let me. What's a good example? Suzanne, will you say that again a little louder, please? Sorry, he was just saying that if you, if we, if we skip the, the literal meaning, then we miss all of the other meanings when we're looking at what's going on in hell. So if we think about a particular person in hell and what he's going through, and we skip what he's going through, the literalness of it, then we miss everything else. And I was asking for an example. Everybody, for a second, if you can, let's go to... Um, this is just before Pierre de Vanya, where it wanted, I wanted to get back to tonight, but let's um, remember, remember that Dante came. I've already uh, talked about that tonight. We did it before, but remember when Dante comes to the walls and Virgil turns him around. But um, shortly after that, remember when they're actually in the city, because remember the city is the outline of Dece itself, of hell proper, and hell proper is defined by heresy, there it is again, Melody. Heresy means the obdurateness of the mind, the mind refusing to see something. So that's the center, that we're getting into the center of hell now. Remember that as Dante passes these tombs, these are the level of heresy, he passes Calvacante, page 51. This is Canto 10 at the very beginning. Um, o lofty power through these impious gyres lead me around as you see fit I said I want to know I want to understand 52 in the middle of the city um, one of the Epicureans because that's what's the, what's the heresy of the Epicurean philosophy we talked about this I, remember, I think Kay answered the question I can't remember 
What is Epicureanism? Do you remember, you guys? When you just live for today and you don't worry about, you just live for happiness for today. Yeah, because it's a denial of the immortality of the soul. Live, drink, be merry now because there is no tomorrow. There is no immortality. So it's a, it's a fundamental denial of our human nature. It's saying there, the soul is not immortal, so be happy now. Augustine said that was the philosophy that destroyed Rome. I'm going to say it's the philosophy that's destroying America. Be happy. Do everything you want now. Have all your pleasures now. Because there is no tomorrow. It, it is just heavily marked the American character because we're so wealthy. You know, we have such... So the Epicureans are here. One of them rises up and Dante meets him. It's Farinata. The middle of 52. O Tuscan walking through, our, walking through our flaming city. There's that metaphor. The flaming city. Alive and speaking with such elegance, be kind enough to stop for a while. What are you doing? Turn around and look at Farinata, who is risen. You will see him from the waist standing straight. Dante turns around to talk with him, and, and Farinata, remember, is a, of a, is a ghibelline. He and Dante went to war with each other. They're two parties. Farinata says on page 53, in the middle of the page, Bitter enemies of mine they were, and of my ancestors, and of my party. I had to scatter them not once, but twice. They were expelled, but only to return from everywhere, I said, but not once, but twice. And art your men, however, never mastered. They're, <laughs> they're continuing to fight. They're, they're carrying their fight over from, you know, reality into hell. Just then alone, another tomb opens and Calv uh, Guido or Cavacante rises up. Go down a few lines on 53. If it be great genius that carries you along through this blind jail, um, Cavacante says, where's my son? Why is he not with you? I do not come alone, I said to him, that one waiting over there guides me through here. The one perhaps your Guido held in scorn. Now Dante uses the past tense. And Guido is really upset at top of 54. What did you say he held? Is he not living? The day's sweet light no longer strikes. Is he dead? Now, the, the people here are prophesizing what's going to happen to Dante. Farinata says, something's going to happen to you and you're not even aware of it. And, and it will take place. Because remember, Dante set the poem in 1300. He was exiled after that time. So he already knows about the event, even though right now he's treating it from a time earlier, so he can treat it as if he's being prophetic. <clears throat> so he sees that men here can see the future. They can prophesize. But apparently they don't know the past. Or the present. Or the present. You know, thanks. Is that clear? Because Guido says, why did you say held? Where's my son? He's... He's hurt. Um, bottom of 54. And now as I would have you um, find peace, I said, I beg you to resolve a problem that has kept my reason tangled in a knot. If I've heard correctly, all of you can see ahead to what the future holds, but your knowledge of the present is not clear. Down here we see like those with faulty visions who only see, he said, what's at a distance. This much the Sovereign Lord grants us here. When events are close to us or when they happen, our mind is blank, and where it's not for others, we would know nothing of your living state. 
Thus you can understand how all our knowledge will be completely dead at that time when the door to future things is closed forever. Then I, moved by regret for what I had done, said, Now you will please tell the fallen one his son is still on earth among the living, that Guido is still alive. Now, literally, Dante's just meeting with a couple of Epicureans. They seem to be able to see the future, but they can't see um, the present or the past. And Guido even says, Thus you can understand how all our knowledge will be completely dead at that time when the door to future things is closed forever. How are we to understand that? Literally, what's going on is they're meeting and exchanging this information, um, but it has to do with knowledge and seeing. So what's the deeper level of meaning here? What, is, what do we learn about seeing, and what do we learn about Epicureanism as a sin and its consequences? If, if you grow up thinking the, the only time that has any meaning for you is the present moment, what would be your worst sin? What would be the worst thing that could happen to you as a punishment for that sin? You'd lose the present. To take it away, that's right. Yeah. No, no present, yeah. Yeah, and in God's time... Is there any past or future? There is no past or future. And what Dante's saying is all of us will, I mean, hopefully we'll all pass from this world into the next world and see God. I hope that's our hope. Um, we'll leave, uh, we did this in Boethius. We'll leave perpetual time, you know, moment for moment. We'll enter eternal time. When our bodies are given to us, um, we will be in eternity. And in that moment, we will be one with God. Right? We'll be in an eternal present. When that moment comes, what will happen to the Epicureans? They'll be blind to everything, right? Because everything will be an eternal present. So literally, we've got Dante just talking with a couple of sinners in the level of the um, heretics. He's talking to a couple of Epicureans and he's just meeting them in these tombs full of fire. They're all burning. That's the contrapasso. And we see that they have some sight. They can see the future. But when the end of time comes um, and bodies are returned and the final lens will be reached, they won't see anything. All sight will be taken away. So whatever pleasure they took will all be turned, in, will be turned into a punishment of pain. So at every level, you know, we do this with, we don't have time to do that with every, you know, every, but that's what we're doing as we go. I mean, everything we've been doing is to look at scenes and, um, So, and let's go back to the, the virtuous pagans. In the virtuous pagans, literally, what's going on is all these people are just meeting and talking, right? They're just talking. But what does the contrapasso tell us? What does it show us? There's a dim light. So we know they're not suffering spiritually. They're not 
being punished. They're in this dim light because they're without the supernatural virtues. They're without the joy of faith, hope, and charity. They don't know gladness the way a Christian would. So on the literal level, they're just in this dim light and they talk. But at the deeper level, Dante's showing us something more. Let me stop now. I hope, does that help? Does, does anybody, anybody have any questions? Karen, I've been watching. You've been looking very serious for the last... Do you have any questions? I don't believe you don't. <laughs> Do you have any questions? No? No? I have another question. I'm sorry. The Okay, the souls that are stuck between heaven and hell, I'm confused about... Stuck? You mean purgatory? No. no where are you? So, um, in the first level, when they get to the first level, um, they describe the uh, people who weren't weren't accepted into hell or oh, heaven. Oh, right, right. Is is that purgatory? I mean, am no, I no, 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 no. They're it in hell. Like they were tortured. No, that's fixed. Okay. That's that's a fixed. Con what Dante enters then is a fixed condition. They're they're in what do you call it? Um, outside. Limbo, yeah. Um, limbo, Dante, this is interesting because the church just changes position on this. This is 20th century. That's a fixed condition. Those are the souls. Well, according to Dante, those are the souls who didn't choose good or evil. They're in between. That's where they are forever. And according to Dante's scheme, continuing on in time, that when souls die who have taken that position, they'll go to limbo. You know, that's where they'll go. So... In the year 1900, the, the people who refuse to take a stand when they die, in Dante's mind, will go to limbo. But that's a fixed condition. Purgatory is different because in purgatory, people in purgatory are only there because they chose God, mercy. That's a, none of those souls are in danger of hell. They're dead. Can I ask the difference between those people and the virtuous pagans? Because it sounds like they're not, they're not in pain, whereas the uh, the people who have not chosen anything and are in limbo, it sound like they're they're suffering. They know since they failed to make a choice, they're going to be stuck there forever. But the the virtuous pagans, I believe, are still in limbo unless they're unless it's described in a different way, but. They're not. They're not tortured. They're not sad. Sorry, what's your question? I'm so I, I guess I'm not sure. Uh, the virtuous pagans are in limbo as well. No, 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 no. Okay. The people in limbo haven't decided one way or the other. The virtuous pagans are a level to themselves because they're good. Okay. They're not being punished. The people in limbo are being punished. They're being chased by. I can't remember, but they're they're being punished. They're following standards and they're pushing and they're suffering. The people in um, the virtuous, the, the level of the virtuous pagans, they're not suffering. Um, they're there because they're good, but but they didn't know God. It's not it, allegorically to go back to your you know everybody's question. They're there because they're good, but they're in a state lacking the 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 joy the hope that people 
have um, who live supernatural virtues. Okay. It just seemed like it was almost a little out of order. Forgive me, Dante, because um, because the people right in the the people in between were in more pain than the people in the first circle in right. limbo. Does anybody answer that? Can anybody answer? Because I, I mean, you're, you're, I think you're absolutely right. Can anybody answer that though? I mean, they, you, you're, I think you're right to put it that way. At least you can say a virtuous pagans, they'd, um, they, they weren't cowardly. I'm not disagreeing, by the way. I think what your comment is really good. They weren't cowardly. They tried to live virtues. So that freed them from punishments. And in terms of punishments, I think you're absolutely right. The, the limbo would be below. It's, it's as if limbo is Dante's way of... Allegorically, I mean, be careful here because we're, we're supposed to carry on the literal level and we can't change it. But literally, they're, they're being punished. They're outside of hell in some sense, even though that's a fixed condition. So, But I think you're right about ordering. And I'm, I'm not going to quarrel with Dante because I have too much respect for him. But, <laughs> but yeah, you're, you're right to put it that way. Are you saying that the, the virtuous pagans are different from are on a different level than limbo? Because I thought they were that. That's where I equated them. No, I, I've got to go. I mean, I'll go back and check it. It's, but uh, to the scheme of things, limbo. The way Dante presents it, limbo is filled with people who are disdained because they didn't make a choice one way or the other. The people, the virtuous pagans, did make a choice. They love virtue. They love goodness. They devoted their lives to virtue. They're really different from the people in limbo. Um, but what we're to understand from the allegory is that even though they love virtue and practice it, so they're free of suffering, um, they didn't have the supernatural virtues to go on. The difference between all the people, this is going to be so fundamental to what we do later, the difference between all the people in hell and purgatory is that the people in purgatory are going to be facing exactly the same sins. Exact, it's the same mountain. Remember, Dante start. if you just draw a mountain going up with Dante trying to go up it, he turned that mountain upside down and inverted it, and that becomes the cone of hell. When he completes the journey through heaven, turn that mountain back right side up, and it'll be purgatory. The difference between the people in hell and purgatory is that the people in purgatory um, admit their sins. They're not using their reason to deny them. And they want mercy. They want mercy. So they're not turning away from God. They're willing to take penance on because they know they deserve them and work with God's graces. But the sins are exactly the same. It's that every one of those sins is now being turned into a good, a, a virtue. Let me, let's stop. I want to, we don't have much time, but I want to get back to um, any more questions um, about the allegorical method that Dante's using, what, what that asks of us. You said that the, uh, that allegory is movement. 
from old to new. Right. That's the first level. It's what St. Paul calls the allegorical level or the movement from old to new. You know, that at the basis of our understanding of ourselves according to our faith, every one of us is born into Adam, the old man. Every one of us comes into the world sharing in the sins of Adam, the old man. Baptism, by faith, wipes away those sins, cleanses us from those sins. And every time we go through the world and we commit sins, whatever they want, in pride or envy or, you know, whatever the sin it is, we are um, acting out of that old man. But to the degree that we try to be like Christ, we become new. Um, we take on a new. So there's a movement from what's old in us to what's new. Every Christmas, really, in one sense, for us, is supposed to be a rebirth, that we leave the old world behind. We mm. celebrate something new. That It's not, just not Christ coming into the world. It's Christ coming into the world in us, that we're celebrating a, a rebirth, a renewal in us, annually. That it's, it should not be marking just a past that happened 2,000 years ago. It's an event that happened 2,000 years ago, the Incarnation, but it's, event, it's an event we're asked to participate in, to reenact each Christmas that we take joy in a new birth. You know, to, mm. the old man. And it's true for every woman, the old woman, the old Eve in every woman. And, and, and well, and to put it more, so and every, every woman carries Eve in her, Every woman is going to be susceptible to Eve's sin, to be susceptible to trickery or lying, or I mean, that's Eve's sin. And Eve, I mean, Mary, that she's, she's struggling to move away from Eve, the old woman, to mm. Mary. Obedience and love to serve God. To Mary is the means by which Christ comes to us. Every woman, in a sense, is, is asked to participate in that birth as a woman. Men can't, I mean, spiritually men can, but, you know, women are the, are the means by which human life comes to us. So every woman, in a sense, it struggles to, with the Eve in her, let's say, just as every man struggles with Adam, and she struggles to move towards uh, Mary in love, to bring... Because Mary's the one who brings to bring Christ into the world through what she does, to move closer to Mary and closer to, uh, or, yeah, closer to Christ. So the old new is always there for us every day. I'm sure you guys all feel this, or <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I'm talking for myself here that that every day is a struggle to put away those old things in us constantly, and and I, I'm assuming that. I'm assuming that trouble, that struggle is not just as just great for me alone, that all of us struggle with it. So... Wait, so hold on. Doc's got a question. No, I'm just... Oh. I read and clarified. Oh. The ones who were... Who, who like um, Pilate, the people who are in the nowhere land are in... In limbo? They're not in limbo. Oh. They're in nowhere. That's, that's what Donnie says. They yeah. are nowhere. Um, they're not in heaven. They're not in hell. Nobody's going to remember them. They're just nowhere. 
you don't get to limbo until after you cross the river and you're in hell proper. And that's the first circle. And it's, as you said, it's a no virtuous pagans. Yeah. yeah. No punishment. But that limbo is the first circle of hell. Those guys, they're nowhere. They're before the river is crossed and they're just... I want to go back and clarify that. Wait until next week and I'll come back to this on you guys, okay? But that does make sense now that no nobody will remember them. So it's as if they never existed and that's why they didn't make it to the first circle. So that makes sense. So my apologies, Dante. You made it. That, that was no, don't, cause, don't apologize because I, I, I think the reasoning before was good. It's just to back that up. And they have no identity for that. I mean, they're not named, you know, for... Um, Dr. Bob? Yes, Dr. Kay. Yes, uh, you mentioned that the baptism cleanses our sins. And so we become uh, free from sin going through baptism. Baptism is the key to get through that to that state. Right, right. Isn't that is saying that those... So coming from that statement... Uh, isn't Dante trying to say those who are not baptized are in limbo? Um, Kay, let me wait on this. Let me because you're asking a huge question. The unbaptized will be um, not in purgatory or hell. Dante believes that he makes that clear. That's going to be a major question for Dante when he comes to the um, Perdiso. Um, and I'm not sure that this is your question, and I hope I'm not going off on a tangent here. Dante, as a Catholic, knows that um, baptism is important because it washes away original, the stain of original sin. But Dante also knows that that in itself isn't going to save somebody. So if somebody's not been baptized, they have not received the grace of Christ to have those sins removed because those sins are that much a part of our natural character. That's how serious it is. But Dante also knows that once a person's baptized as a child, he can go on with the use of his free will and commit sins. And he can actually turn from God actively, deny God's graces. Most of the people in hell, in Dante's hell, are Catholics. A lot of them are priests and a lot of them are popes. So baptism... Um, doesn't protect somebody forever. What, what it does is wash away original sin, but it doesn't prevent somebody from committing sins. If a person commits sins and chooses to commit himself to sin, he can put his soul in danger. Um, so, but the unbaptized are, don't have the protections of a grace. So they're left, they're, what Dante's saying is they're left um, um, without a protection, their, their original sin is not washed away and they're left in that state. Um, here, I want to, sorry, go ahead. Baptism also an indelible imprint on your soul that you are now the child of God. Sorry, David, say that again, you're what? I say baptism supposedly puts an indelible print on your soul that you have become a child of God's. Yeah, yes. 
but yeah, what, based on worse than where you're sin, yeah, of original sin. Yeah, right. But Dante's also showing that 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 original grace can be denied and refused, that people can turn away from God. That's that's ortho, I mean, that's the orthodox teaching on here. I want to do something because we're at the end of our hour and we've not gone to the text. But uh, let me just very quickly, um, if I can, to try to get us back. Um, I want to get back to where we were before. Um, so let me just pick up with one sinner just to get us back into the text again. Remember Dante enters the, the, le- the middle level. He's left the level of the incontinent, the leopard, the spotted leopard, and gone to the level of the, the lion. These are the more noble sins because, or the more violent sins because they show the nobility of the soul. Most of the sinners are here because there's a, a nobility to them, a, a great pride in what they've done in their lives. But it also means they're more susceptible. So he showed us the, the, um, the violence against each other. And here in Canto 13, on page 69, he's showing us the violence against oneself. So in the first level, so there's three circles to the level of the violence, the violence against other, the, here the violence against self, okay? It's here that he meets Pierre de Vania, and he hears these noises and asks Virgil what's going on, and Virgil says, pluck a weed. He plucks the weed, and, the, and a voice speaks from out of the weed. If you remember Virgil, um, the prototype, the original for this was in Virgil in the Bleeding Bush, when Aeneas and his company left Troy, they went to the island just off the coast and attempted to found the city, and he pulled up a, a bush and it bled and spoke to him. Polydorus was the soul who spoke around about the betrayals. Dante knows exactly what he's doing. Virgil's his teacher. He's using Virgil now and um, treating Pierre de Vanni in that same way. So, um, page, middle of 69, middle of 69, a wounded soul, my sage, replied to him, if he had only let himself believe what he'd read in verses I once wrote, that is, if Dante fully believed what he read in his literature, he wouldn't have a question, he knows what's going on. Dante's having fun with himself because Virgil's having fun with Dante right now. Um, so appalling are your lovely words, I must reply, but not be not displeased if I'm lured into a little conversation. I'm the one who held both the keys that fitted Frederick's heart I turned them both locking and unlocking with such finesse that I let few into his confidence. I was so faithful to my glorious office. This is like a guy in the modern world who's so committed to his job, so loyal, he will do everything for his boss. Everything. And he will commend himself on it. He'll pride himself and say, look how good I am. It's like a father or mother saying, look how good I am. I've done all this for you. Okay, that's how serious it is. Um, I let few into his confidence. I was so faithful to my glorious office. I lost not only sleep, but life itself. Page 70 at the top. That courtesan who constantly surveyed Caesar's household with her adulterous eyes, mankind's undoing the special vice of courts, inflamed the hearts of everyone against me 
and these inflamed, inflamed in turn Augustus, and my happy honors turned to sad flame. Now, <clears throat> what is this sad courtesan? You probably won't remember Francisca's speech, but when Dante asks her what happened, she says, I loved, and love turned into love, and love within love. She uses love in a way that's almost incestuous. It keeps turning back into itself. I'd go back to the Francisca speech and read it, and you'll see. Um, Pierre de Vanier is doing the same thing. That courtesan who constantly surveyed Caesar's household, because remember, he's giving himself to his job, to the state, with her adulterous eyes, mankind's undoing the special vice of courts, cities, inflamed the hearts of everyone against me, and these inflamed, inflamed in turn Augustus, and my happy honors turned into sad laments. What is that courtesan? Name that courtesan. My mind moved by scornful satisfaction, believing death would free me from all such scorn, made me unjust to me, who was all just. Okay, here we are with all these ironies. So first of all, what's the courtesan? And second, is he just? Was he just? What's wrong? Literally, we're just having this bush speak to us. What's the meaning of it? Spiritually, what's going on? What's the courtesan? Who's the courtesan? What is it? What's the courtesan, Doc? Courtesan is a... Um... No, what's the courtesan here? Oh, I don't know. Anybody? Isn't it envy? That everybody was so envious of what they did that they turned away from him. What are the two driving forces of the commercial regime? What are the two driving forces of the, of the secular state? Envy and greed. Pride and envy, and f because of it, greed. The spiritual driving forces of the commercial regime are pride and envy. And greed out of them. So all these people became envious. I mean, picture this in an office today with some guy doing his job and saying, look, I've devoted my life to you. I've done everything I've done for you. Look how good I am. And everybody around doing what? Because they're not in his position. They're envying him to such a point that finally they scorn him. And he feels it to the point where he finally takes his life. And now he says... My mind moved by scornful satisfaction, believing death would free me from all scorn, made me unjust to myself, who was all just. Now, what do we learn about Pierre de Vanya's sense of his justice in himself? Was he just? Was he a just man? In his own eyes, he was just. Is he, was he just? Well, he knew he made the wrong decision by killing himself, and that's why he said, made me unjust to me, because he admitted that, that pride drove him to uh, do whatever his uh, boss wanted, Caesar, um, until... Would, would he have killed himself? Life. Sorry, would he have killed himself if he were just? No, and that's why I think he said he made me unjust to me because he 
he realizes that he made a mistake. Of course, if he realized that, yes, he wouldn't be in hell. Was he just to himself? What, no. no, was he just before he took his life? No, no. No, what was his this where what was his sense of justice before he took his life? That he was the best. He, that his pride made him believe that he was the best and and how could anybody uh, drive him away? So he was going to teach him a lesson, maybe, to, by killing himself. You know, I, so often, you guys know. I, I mean, it's a, it's a vice. I've got to pull in, but I, we watch a lot of movies, and it's so often that I come across movies in which somebody says, "I was just doing my job," <laughs> and they justified. They don't. I mean, you, I'm sure you guys have all heard. That. They use that phrase to justify the most horrible things because in the world, that's exactly the way the world sees. If if giving obedience to your boss is the highest thing because it's your way of showing how loyal you are, but there are things the boss that is doing that are wrong, he's using people or you know greed or you know that that's justice in the world's terms because that's all there is, and if that's all there is and people turn against you, what's finally your only recourse? Take your life. Is everybody seeing the ironies? I mean, their iron, the ironies just don't stop. Inflame the hearts of everyone against me, and these inflamed, inflamed, and turn. It's like Francisco's lust. It's just turning in on everybody, and even his language begins to turn in on itself. He has no clue. There is nobody in hell who can see the truth of what he's doing. He's trapped in a choice he made. It's what he's wanted. It's what he's got. Remember, I said that no God. God didn't put. They put themselves there, and the the state they're in is is fixed in an eternal present because that's what they wanted. The condition of hell is that the people who are there have lost the good of the intellect. They don't see that they don't see, and everything they say is full of ironies. We can't see a scene in which what people are describing isn't ironic in some level. Every scene makes us aware that there's something more, that there are two things going on and the sinners only see one of them. It's the blind world, it's the inflamed city, the blind city, the wasteland, that's the nature of hell. Let me stop. It's, um, um, I, I wanted to get back. Let's pick up here, can we, when we start? Because we'll be back and so I can go through some of the scenes more quickly. We'll do the level of the violent next time we'll finish it, and we'll start the level of the fraudulent. Um, it gets pretty dark, pretty dark. Um, um, I think the notes I sent you should help. I'll, I'll, now that we're back together, I, I'll get the notes to you sooner. I'll try to get you notes for the next class um, several days before we meet, so, okay? Um, good to be back with you guys. I feel like we're in a really grim place, and I know, don't know that I can do anything to get us, because we're looking at some pretty dark things, but um, remember what Dante said. Here, in fact, let me do this, because this will help. It'll at least relieve me. <laughs> 
these these are Dante's line, and it's just so important. I hope everybody will hold on to these. Midway along the journey of our life, I woke to find myself in a dark wood, for I had wandered off from the straight path. How hard it is to tell what it was like, this wood of wild wilderness, savage and stubborn. The thought of it brings back all my old old fears. Remember, Dante's writing because he's already undergone the journey. He went down into hell, he went up purgatories into the heaven. Now he's come back to tell his story. So it's there in memory, but it's a world he's left behind. Now it's like um, Jonah. He's come back to tell a story. He's a Jonah figure, a prophet. How hard it is to tell what it was like, this wood of wilderness, savage and stubborn, a bitter place, death would scarce be bitterest. But if I would show the good that came out of it, I must talk about other than the good. His whole purpose is to show the good that came out of it. But to do that, he has to go back to those other things. Okay? Death could scarce be bitter. It's like the end of Eliot's poem that we read. But if I would show the good that came out of it, I must talk about things other than that good. To get to the good that he so desires, he has to help us see these things first. Okay, on that sober note, it's good to see you guys. Um, genuinely thank good you, to Bob. see you. Yeah, thank you. You guys have a good week. Keep us in your prayers, please. Um, we keep you guys in our prayers all the time. Okay. Thank you. Good night, everyone. Bye. Bye. I hope this is working okay.